Welcome to the scene. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. Thank you for being here, folks. Today, we're going to be looking into a book called Architecture, Mysticism, and Myth by William Lethaby. This is a book that I found at the Serious Readers Dog Star Bookstore, right? The Dog Star Bookstore. It has a very clear allusion to the constellation Sirius, which co- coincidentally, <clears throat> yesterday, there was an alignment between Sirius and the constellation and the new moon, the Leo new moon. Sorry, I was looking towards my resident astrologer, Tara, for that one, but she is listening to the Pleiadians right now. That's okay. She'll join us in a moment. We've got this really interesting book. I found it in an equally interesting bookstore. And uh, let's get into it. Chapter 1, The World Fabric. If we erase from the mind absolutely all that science has laboriously spied out of the actual facts of the material universe and ask ourselves what would have been the thoughts by which man attempted at first to explain and image forth the natural order, we may put ourselves in sympathy with notions that at first seem absurd. We may see that the progress of science is merely the framing and destruction, one by one, of a series of hypotheses, and that the early cosmogenesis are one in kind with the widest generalizations of science from certain appearances to frame a theory of explanation from phenomena to generalize law. In thus putting ourselves back into the early world, not only must we remember the limitations to the knowledge of phenomena, but also the inadequate means of expression. Not only must we ask ourselves what primitive man, to use the phrase for what it is worth, not letting it betray us, can have observed, We must ask at the same time what images can he have had before him to which he might liken the wonder of the sky and the might of the sea, or rather these are two phases of the same question by which we may realize the early systems for in these things at least concepts were immediately linked with words, words which were descriptive comparisons. The unknown universe could then only be explained in terms of its known parts. The earth, shut in by the night sky, must have been thought of as a living creature, a tree, a tent, a building, and these each form the the world system to peoples now living. Given the data, says Herbert Spencer, as known to him, the inference drawn by the primitive man is the reasonable inference. A tree with wide overarching branches must have formed an apt and satisfactory explanation for legends of a world tree are so widely distributed. We meet with them at the dawn of record and they still strike their roots where wild in woods the savage runs. The Chaldean inscriptions describe such a tree as growing at the center of the world. Its branches of crystal form the sky and droop to the sea. 
The Phoenicians thought the world like a revolving tree over which was spread a vast tapestry of blue embroidered with stars. Traces of this scheme linger late into times of culture and would account for a story in Apollonius of Tyana that the people of Sardis doubted if the trees were not created before the earth, an idea exactly parallel to the controversy in the Talmud as to the priority in creation of the heavens or the earth, one side maintaining that the object was made first, then the pedestal, the other that the foundation is laid before the building is erected. All the East knew of such a tree in Japan, gods broke their swords against it in vain. In Greece, it seems its memory long to have survived as the olive of the forest of the Colonias. In the Norse system, a vast tree, the world ash, rises in the center of the earth, its branches forming the several heavens of the gods. Its roots strike deep into hell, and there a serpent evermore lies deep asleep at the world's dark core. Maori science still represents such a tree as rising to the heavens, that dark nocturnal canopy which, like a forest, spreads its shades. It, its mighty growth first forced asunder heaven and earth. Such an idea is probably very uniform at a certain early stage of civilization. The fundamental conception of these myths, says Lee Normant, which never appear in perfection except under their oldest forms, represents the universe as an enormous tree. Its trunk transfixes the earth, projecting upwards into the heavens and below into the abyss. The heavens revolve on this axis and may be reached by climbing the stem. An extract from Dr. Tyler's early history of mankind will lead us to a later point of view. Man, now surrounded by his own works, sees in the universe a larger tent to dwell in, a chamber and ultimately a most elaborate structure, a conception which lasts long even in the direct line of descent of science. The idea it is this idea it is children find so difficult to shake off that there must be a brick wall somewhere circumscribing the universe and we still recognize it in the phrase to make the welkin ring there are says dr tyler other mythological ways besides the heaven tree by which in different parts of the world it is possible to go up and down between the surface of the ground and the sky or the regions below such tales belong to a rude and primitive state of knowledge of the earth's surface and what lies above it and below it the earth is a flat plain surrounded by the sea and the sky forms a roof on which the sun and the moon and stars travel the polynesians who thought like so many other people ancient and modern that the sky descended at the horizon and enclosed the earth still call foreigners heaven bursters as having broke in from another world outside now let me stop right here because this is reminding me of the david talbot saturn theory the birkeland current that we talked about with ari aslan on the first appearance of ari's on this podcast my family thinks i'm crazy podcast i think that was episode 
Let's go back and see what episode that was. Hold on a second, folks. We just published episode 64 of the My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast with Greg Carlwood. Just did it. August 9th, 2021, 11.27 p.m. What was I just looking up? Right, Ari Aslan. What was his first appearance on this podcast? What number? It was episode 23. I knew it was in the 20s. Episode 23 with Ari Aslan. We talked about esoteric cosmology. And here we go, getting more confirmation. And even on the flat earth stuff, too. It's just very interesting. So here we go. As having broken in from another world outside. The sky is to most savages... (laughs) Hold on. Hit the brakes. When was this book written? 19... Oh, 1891. Okay, so that's why they're calling people savages, folks. Let's not get offended here. What it is called in the South American language, the earth on high. And we can quite understand the thought of some Paraguayans that at death their souls would go up to heaven by the tree which joins the earth and sky. There are holes or windows through the sky roof or firmament where the rain comes through, and if you climb high enough, you can get through and visit the dwellers above who look and talk and live very much in the same way as the people on earth. As above the flat earth, so below it, there are regions inhabited by men or man-like creatures who sometimes come up to the surface and sometimes are visited by the inhabitants of the upper earth. We live, as it were, upon the ground floor of a great house, with upper stories rising one over another above us, and cellars down below. This stage of thought lasted so long embracing the great architectural ages in its span that one cannot but see that there must have been a relation and reaction between such a world structure and the buildings of man especially the sacred buildings set apart as they mostly were for a worship that thought it found its object in earth, sky, and stars. It would appear generally that to the great civilizing races a square-formed universe preceded the hemispherical. Indeed, we are much in the hemispherical age at present. It is just archaic enough to furnish the poet with his similes, But an old poet, like Job, found his comparisons in the chamber form, a cubicle box with a lid on it. In the center of this vast box, whose lid is the sky, rises the earth mountain, which is its prop, and the pivot of its revolutions. It was seen that the center of this revolution is at a point within the space guarded by the great bear, and that beyond this the stars dip under the earth of the northern horizon. Thus the earth mountain in the north furnishes a most adequate explanation of the apparent motions of the heavens. The crystal or metal heaven of the fixed stars revolves about it and consequently the stars are hidden behind it. In every revolution the sun, moon, and planets issuing from a hole at the east and sinking into another at the west move overhead and find their way back by a subterranean path. 
The motive power was sometimes given by active beings, as in the Book of Enoch, or by the winds. Thus, the universe was like a great mill. It is likely that the dome was the next step, although, as yet, they were hard put to it to convey the idea. So a skull or half an eggshell furnished the comparison for the whole canopy of heaven, as in the northern system of Eda. Earth was not formed, nor heaven above. A yawning gap there was, but grass nowhere. The earth is made fast in the midst, the sea round about it in a ring. The firmament in the form of a skull was set up over the earth with four sides, and under each corner they set dwarves. The earth called Midgard is round without, and beyond is deep sea. In the midst of the world was reared Asgard, where Odin is enthroned, seeing over the whole world and each man's doings. Without in the deep sea lies the Midgar worm, tail in mouth, the Ouroboros. The holiest seat of the gods is at Yggdrasil's ash. Its boughs spread over the whole world. Three roots it has, one in heaven, one in hell, where is Nidhag, one where before was yawning gap, and there is the spring of knowledge. A fair hall is there, and from it issue three maidens, has been, being, and will be, who shape the lives of men. On the boughs of the ash sit an eagle, wise in much, and between his eyes a hawk, while a squirrel runs, <clears throat> while a squirrel runs up and down the tree, bearing words of hate betwixt the eagle and the worm. The following may serve as a general description of what we may call the chamber type, either square or round, with a ceiling or a dome. The earth is a mountain, and around its base flows the ocean, or it floats on the ocean. Beyond is a high range of mountains which form the walls of the enclosure, and on these is either laid the ceiling in one great slab, or it is domed. Sometimes the system is a compromise. The earth square, the sky circular, and they do not seem to have realized the difficulty of the pendentives. Well, that, that was in parentheses. This guy, this author, he's interesting. The firmament is sustained by the earth mountain in the center, as in the Esquima account given by Dr. Rink. The earth with the sea supported by it rests upon pillars and covers an underworld accessible by various entrances from the sea, as well as from mountain clefts. Above the earth an upper world is found, beyond which the blue sky, being of solid consistence, vaults itself like an outer shell, and as some say, revolves around some high mountain top in the far north. A man in a boat went down to the border of the ocean, where the sky comes down to meet it. Man was created on the mountaintop, where it is in contact with heaven, and all earthly vegetation springs from the seeds of the central tree. In the South Pacific, Mr. Andrew Lang tells us the sky is a solid vault of blue stone. In the beginning of things, the sky pressed hard on the earth, and the god Ru, spelled R-U, was obliged to thrust the two asunder. 
Ru is now the Atlas of Mangaya, the supporting Ru. Above the firmament is the Oversea, and the rain falls from it through perforations. It serves as the floor of the upper regions, and flowing down the firmament, or down the sides of the mountain, supplies earthly seas. The stars are either attached to the firmament or float on this oversea. There is an amusing story of this celestial sea as late as Gervasi, Gervasi of Tilbury. Some people coming out of a church were surprised to see an anchor, an anchor dangling by a rope from the sky, which caught in the tombstones. Presently, a man was seen descending with an object of detaching it but as he reached the earth he did he died as we should if drowned in water hmm, very interesting that's spelled g-e-r-v-a-s-e of tilbury t-i-l-b-u-r-y that's some kind of story about people walking out of church and seeing a rope dangling from the sky with an anchor attached and when the man went to go and try to detach it he died as if he was drowning in the air like a fish out of water very interesting stuff in the egyptian system it would seem to have been of the square type the egyptian says champollion compared the sky to a ceiling of an edifice Illustrations which figure the cosmos in personified forms are frequent on temples and mummy cases. An example is given by Lee Norman, showing Seb, the earth mountain, Tep, the firmament, and Nut, the heavenly waters. In the Book of the Dead, the soul passes through the gateway of this world into the other. The house of Osiris, and that too, was shut in by a wall with a great gateway for the sun at the east to reach our land. The dead had to be ferried over the waters which surrounded the earth, and so the river of death had purely a geographical import in its origins. Renoff says that Ra is addressed as Lord of Great Dwelling. The Great Dwelling is the universe as the hall of Seb is the earth the hall of Nut is the heaven and the hall of the twofold Mat is the netherworld water was with them the primordial element in the formation of the universe of which Maspero gives this account for the astronomers of Egypt as for the writers of the first chapter of Genesis the sky was fluid and enclosed wholly the earth resting on the solid atmosphere. When the elemental chaos took form, the god Sku raised on high the waters and spread them out in space. It is on this celestial ocean, Nut, that the planet and stars float. The planets and stars float. The monuments show us them as Gene of human or animal form navigating each his bark in the wake of Osiris. There was another widely known conception which presented the stars fixed like suspended lamps to the celestial vault and they were lighted afresh each night 
by divine power to give light to the knights of the earth. So, over and over again, we have this idea that the heavens are this vault or this solid, closed-off space, which a lot of you Flat Earth listeners are probably really excited at that. So go out and uh, buy a copy of Architecture, Mysticism, and Myth by William Lethaby. It's a very interesting book. I happened to find it. Well, I was in Lancaster at a very strange bookstore that's Lancaster, Pennsylvania. On today's Swapcast with Phil, Amish Phil, from the Amish Inquisition podcast, he is from Lancashire County, England. So there is a little coincidence, especially because that was a last minute trip down to Pennsylvania. And Phil and I had planned this podcast uh, about a month out. So, little synchronicities abound, as usual, when you're living in the scene. The synchromystic experiment in the ever-expanding now. Or, the synchromystic exploration of the ever-expanding now. It's the second one. And here's the thing. When we're at the bookstore, certain books like this one, Architecture, Mysticism, and Myth, just pop out and you know i can't go to every bookstore folks so if you like books and you go to use bookstores a lot join us on the patreon patreon.com slash mftic get in touch with me tell me about the weirdest book you've ever found you can also go to podinbox.com slash mftic and leave us a voicemail tell us why your family thinks you're crazy Or tell us about your favorite book, a strange book that you found at a bookstore. And if you join the Patreon, sign up, I'll send you an MFTIC sticker. We got shirts on the way. And if you sign up for the higher tiers, you can also get a used book from my collection. That's right. I will send you a book along with that sticker. So sign up on the Patreon, patreon.com slash mftic but don't expect me to send you this book folks architecture mysticism and myth i'm going to be holding on to this one it's a really good one it's a rare fine 22 dollars, but you know what it was worth it it's original 1891 so very cool stuff anyways thank you for listening to the my family thinks i'm crazy podcast Enjoy this swapcast with Amish Phil and the Amish Inquisition. Jambo, Mahaba. Welcome to the Armist Inquisition, episode 194. 
Sunday the 8th of August. Uh, I'm Amish Phil and I met up with Mark Steves from My Family Thinks I'm Crazy this week. And uh, we had a lot, of, a little chat about all sorts of things, synchro mystic experiments, and uh, lots of interesting stuff you'll find interesting. I got rather drunk and uh, influenced by substances, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I messed up with the time zone, so I ended up having to record with Matt after Matt had gone home. So we recorded everything backwards. So. You'll hear from uh, Mark and myself for a bit, for an hour, and then uh, I'll put in uh, the topical stuff that me and Matt did, the housekeeping and the uh, the Rona news and uh, all the rest of it. Okay, right, enjoy. See you next week. Draw! We're going, Mark. Praise Jabalon. Right on. That's one of our catchphrases, praise Jabalon. Did you have you ever come across that that phrase in your uh, research, Jabulon? No, tell me about it's it. It's like uh, something to do with like the Freemasonry triple godhead. Mm. So Jar being uh, Yahweh and Bull being Baal and On being Osiris from ancient Egypt. And apparently this is some uh, secretive word that they use, Jabulon. Uh, but I just found it funny and put it on a T-shirt. <laughs> yeah. No, I, the person I just brought up, Michael Wan, he just did a presentation on Ball. And, uh, yeah, it's quite an interesting character. Personally, I think, uh, you know, sometimes people go too far when they do this research. They get a little scared and think, like, the whole world's falling on their head uh, and make a lot of those connections where they aren't. But with the right discernment, you find that oh, more often than not, there's no such thing as a coincidence, you know. And and yeah, Jabalon, Babylon, <laughs> you know, and the Tower of Babel, you know. And what does it sound like when someone's not making sense? They're babbling, 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 you know. And the Tower of Babylon was kind of like this moment where humanity got divided into all these different tongues. And from then we became you know, uncooperative with one another. And I think that's where we're heading now is like the mending of that division that was created, you know, like the Piscean age that we're leaving is all about division. And now we're heading into this Aquarian age. I think they want to use English as the, you know, global language. It's pretty obvious I didn't come up with that thought, but you know, it's, it's a, it's curious because it's a mix of Irish, it's a mix of uh, German, it's a mix of French, you know, it's sort of a mix of different languages, English, and yeah. um, and it's just curious how, you know, this language and then I think Ethiopian are like the two languages that they're teaching to this AI computer, right? <laughs> right. Um, have you heard anything about this, this AI <laughs> computer that they're trying to build? No. What's this? Oh, yeah, I was listening to the higher side chats, and I believe Allison McDowell was talking about this and how this AI computer that they want everybody generated into, it is learning two language, two languages first, which is the English and Ethiopian. And I just thought that was so strange, considering, you know, Ethiopia is apparently the place where the Ark of the Covenant was left, and 
they're one of the only uh, countries in Africa that was never colonized. You know, even though the Italians tried to colonize them, they successfully fought them off. But it's almost like, you know, the world leaders, the global world leaders want to like either shove one at them for that, for never, you know, bowing down by kind of pushing them into this globalism thing in that way. Or maybe it connects, you know, because we have this uh, place, the the Horn of Africa, Mm. the Strait of, uh, what is it, that? sea is it the red sea or the dead sea you know from my perspective it's they're kind of the same thing but the red sea right is where israel and egypt like they run along that and then that goes down yeah uh, like the gulf there gulf of arabia is on the other side the tigris and the euphrates yeah so there's something about this region of the world you know yeah well, well well crossing the red sea Goes back to right. the book again, isn't it? Although some guys say it's the Reed Sea and that it's a mistranslation, and what they meant to say was they were crossing the Reed Sea. But there is something about you're right. There's something about this geographic area, isn't there? That seems special, and it's and, and it's it's the river, right? This Tiger and Euphrates River was said to be, you know, the fertile crescent, you know, the the place where humanity was born. But when we get into the prophecies and the teachings of Edgar Sacy, and then you go even further back and you see Plato and all these Greek guys are writing about Atlantis and, you know, with such detail. And then we actually find these megalithic structures that sort of match up to the Atlantean story. To me, I think there might even be something older, right? And this isn't, again, my thought, original thought. This is just based on the research and this being the sponge of all these different podcasts. Things work in a sort of reflective way, in a microcosm, macrocosm way. And just like the tigers at Tigris and Euphrates River create this sort of like fertile zone where humanity was supposedly like born, right over here in America, there's a very ancient old river called the Susquehanna River. And it becomes the Chesapeake Bay, which is where Washington, D.C. is. It's where the first computer was ever built. It was where some of the first work with electricity ever happened. Mm -hmm. So this is a very interesting place. But it's also strange because the Susquehanna people and the Susquehanna, the word Susquehanna, actually has more roots in Gaelic language, Irish language. (laughs) to the connection that I just, you know, where English is kind of like this mix of Irish and German, but we also have this strange history of Ireland where were the people in Ireland totally living just on that one little part? I don't believe so. I think there was a time when either the ocean was much lower, there was more land to traverse, or they just were very skilled at seafaring and they were able to go off and find new land and they never wrote back, you know, they didn't send letters back. So it's like if Irish people left and went to America and made a little civilization, you know, 
how would we have known? You know, it would have been fairly remote, and then they could have just blended right in when the rest of the Europeans came and started building these colonies, you know, and, and maybe even that's a part of what these Tartarian researchers are thinking about when they talk about how, uh, how it's sort of like rewriting history. This place was not what it was. And then these people come in and they say, Oh yeah, no, no, no. These are our buildings. They weren't here before. And they rewrite the books and make it seem like, you know, all these old looking buildings are actually built by, colonists but you go back and you read the colonists reports of what they had and the provisions they had and it doesn't always add up it's like okay you're telling me they were able to quarry these big huge pieces of stone to build these like old town halls and libraries and these things that just looked roman or totally ancient like there's these libraries that are very common on the east coast with like bright bright red stone orange stone and i could just be a complete novice and like some guy who's an expert in archaeology and geology and architecture could come and be like dude you're an idiot there's an explanation for that but (laughs) the fact of the matter is from my perspective from the story of my life there's something mysterious about that and i think as it connects to what you asked me about before we started recording the synchromistic experiment and the ever expanding now is like your moment, the moment you're in the things that come to your awareness are important and valuable and they align with your purpose. And for me, that purpose is sort of like going into these mysteries and looking this stuff up, you know, and, and I chose that. I said, yeah, that's what I want to do. And more things started presenting themselves. Right. So it's kind of where I'm at now is like, how do we play with these synchronicities in a way that's proactive and gets us to this kind of law of attraction place where we're actually manifesting our future, you know, and our destiny. And I mean, the signs, the symbols, the synchronicities, they start to increase in their volume as you expand your awareness that's something uh, you mentioned pulling on a thread and that's something i noticed when i started getting into esoteric subjects and that you'll read a book and then you'll read uh you know three books further down the line and you'll remember something from the first book and you'll recognize a connection there and you feel as you as you go into more of these subjects that you are pulling on a thread and uh, more things start becoming revealed to you and you start drawing connections where previously you wouldn't have even bothered to look and so you can end up reading books on very different topics whether it be like gematria or sacred geometry or the tarot or oh astrology ancient history and you still you can still pick out these certain accents and uh, threads that run between these subjects and it does give you like a mystical feeling you think whoa this is some this is beyond a coincidence there's something here there's something that needs more investigation and you feel like you're just starting to it's like a christmas day and you get that present and you just peel off a tiny corner of the wrapping if you can see what it is and you just feel like you're pulling more and more threads and you know it it fills you with intrigue and then you feel like you know am i going to find something not just meaningful, but life-changing. Is there some sort of greater truth to be discovered that our sort of prosaic explanations for everything, you know, aren't even beginning to comprehend? 
Yeah. Yeah, and I, I think, you know, it almost seems like a form of madness to somebody who's not in this. It becomes like, an obsession. Curiosity. Yeah, well, and but that's the thing is, like, you have to be present, you know. I think being present is what I found is the most important thing because sometimes the synchronicities, they're pointing you towards things that you're avoiding in your life maybe or things that need more attention. Um, but, yeah, it, it does kind of seem like a form of madness to people who might not be in, in in the sphere. Like, you know, how do those things connect? You know, you imagine, like, the red strings on the wall all strung up over a map, like <laughs> making all these connections. But really, it's it's something to, to participate in before you can fully understand, you know, and, and that's why I bring it back to purpose because from my perspective, it seems like I've always had the intention of giving back to the world somehow. I've always been curious in a deeper meaning, you know, and when I look into my astrological chart, it sort of backs that up, you know, which is always cool. I encourage people to to look into that for themselves because I'm not an expert. I'm only beginning to, like, figure that out about myself. But I think purpose is really important. And some people's purposes might be a lot less complex than that. Like, some people aren't here to go and solve a bunch of mysteries. But if you're listening to something like this, the Amish Inquisition, I would imagine that you're interested in mysteries. And that's kind of like to bring it back to podcasting, why I love podcasting so much, because it's kind of like synchronicity fuel, because all these podcasts <laughs> are just waiting out there for you to find. And, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of podcasts that you could listen to that would probably add something to your life uh, in a positive way. And, you know, you don't know which one it's going to be, really. Like, sometimes you just see a name and you're like, oh, that sounds cool. Like, I remember the first time I saw the word Grimerica, I was like, what's Grimerica? You know, like, what is that? That's like America, grimy. <laughs> Grim. you know, I'm expecting like a rap, underground rap, like, <laughs> you know, something like that. And I go and listen, and it's like two polite, kind of polite, Canadian guys, you know, just chatting with uh, with mystical people and historians. And just like you described before, you get to talk to all these awesome authors and scholars and thinkers. And and that's what, for me, Grimerica Show offered, like this whole group of people that I didn't know existed, you yeah. know, from my limited perspective before I found podcasting. Because the authors, they seemed real, but they were real on a different level, you know, like I could read their words. But it wasn't until I like heard Joseph Farrell's voice that his book, Gene Giants, Monsters and Men, actually came to life, you know, or like Mark Booth and his book, The Secret History of the World, you know, like I was able to hear those guys get interviewed, hear their voice. And now it's almost like going back and reading their book has another dimension to it. And that also is synchronistic because I just found those books randomly thinking like, Oh, that's an interesting cover, you know, like <laughs> let me check this out. And that book changed my life. You know, it, oh my. it's really profound. And then now having the opportunity, like you said, to be in the podcasting world, you, you know, I've talked to people who have inspired me that are just podcasters like Graham and Darren from the Grimerica 
show. They did the 20th episode of the podcast I do. And uh, even the podcast I do, I kind of was inspired by Sam because Sam Tripoli was like, hey, what's the name of your podcast? I told him the old name of my podcast, and he was honest with me. He was like, that kind of sucks, you know, come up with something else that makes more sense, you know. So I was like, okay. And I'm hanging out at my family's house. I'm like, hey, I'm working for this podcast. It's called Tinfoil Hat. I'm so excited, you know. And they're like, what? Like, that's not a job. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) You need to get a real job. And I'm like, oh, my God. My family thinks I'm crazy. Like, they don't realize how big of an opportunity this is. And then that's where the name of my show came from. My family thinks I'm crazy. And that's, you know, always been true. But it kind of took that moment. Uh, synchronistically to create it, you know, and now here I am. My family thinks I'm crazy kind of birthed this other project called the Synchromistic Experiment and the Ever Expanding Now because I want to be able to focus in, you know, and have conversations with people like Michael Wan and Ross Ben and Chris Knowles and Laurel Erica and all these people who kind of focus on, uh, and those are just people I've spoken to in the past you know, a few weeks, there's so many more, you know, <laughs> one guy that I've never uh, met or, or talked to Michael Sandler, I think his name is. And he's really inspired me a bunch with his automatic writing and oh. all the information about automatic writing. And, and really what that's done is shown me that, you know, my life is a story. And once you own that and start to like feel that in an authentic way, you know, you're, you can rewrite your the story of your life in the direction that you want to live it. Would you say that's true for you, Phil? Yeah, and it's uh, quite empower, empowering. You know, we uh, it depends how you grew up, but, I mean, I sort of grew up in the sort of new, when the new atheists were big, and mm-hmm. um, the sort of a, a tendency to nihilism, there's a, a desolation and a sort of pointlessness of it all when you you're immersed in this materialist paradigm that we currently live in which you know from the post-enlightenment era it's sort of got worse and worse and sort of peaked with the new atheists and it seems to me that there is a shift and that people are sort of rejecting this worldview this paradigm if you like and saying no i don't believe i'm a fucking uh, you know a sack of meat a biological robot spinning you know an insignificant ant on the spinning rock hurtling through space you know i think there's something more to us i think there's something special about the human race as corny as it sounds and you know if if i was 20 years younger i'd be laughing my cock off at myself for sounding like a you know chucking hippy dippy bullshit about but that I really have had that experience, and it's it's hard to talk to people about because we're kind of in the minority. <laughs> you know, most people are still entrenched in that in that sort of biological well, determinism. And I think that this stuff kind of is in the air, you know, because I remember, like, I was born in 1994, so that was sort of towards the end of that era, yep. and. Uh, but I absorbed it, you know, because at a young age, I was very much interested in animals and nature and science. So all of that appealed to me and it felt like, oh, OK, yeah, evolution makes sense. This all makes sense. And like I started getting interested in war and politics and like middle school and like weird shit, like espionage. Like why is a middle schooler interested in <laughs> you know, espionage? But I was. 
And then, uh, you know, something happened. Like, martial arts came next, naturally. But something happened that sparked me to smoke cannabis. And I think that really pushed me towards where I'm at now. And it's, like, opening my eyes to spirituality. Because I would have been the same way, like, laughing, even from that 15-year-old perspective, like, not knowing shit. I thought I knew it all. <laughs> yeah. And, like, being an atheist was, like, one of the ways that I thought I was smarter than my grandparents and my parents who, you know, would go to church. And now I kind of look back and I'm like, okay, well – I still don't agree with the church, but it's more for like a philosophical reason now rather than just like a cultural reason. And, uh, and cannabis really opened up that ability for me to think in this new way philosophically. And, you know, I don't want to say that it was like the creation of that new part of me, but it definitely was like a fuel, you know, it it accelerated my spiritual growth. And I mean, I've smoked, every day for the past nine years. So I don't know if that's the healthiest way to smoke cannabis, but it's definitely a commitment that I've made. And I think that it's benefited me in the realms of uh, spiritual intelligence and just straight up uh, ability to kind of absorb what's around me. And yeah, I I don't think I would be here if it wasn't for, for cannabis. But then again, podcasting was the next you know, phase of it for sure. But, but yeah, I I definitely, I think it's in the air, you know, and ever since 2012, there's been this feeling in the air of uh, harmony. I think certain people can tap into it 100%. Some people only feel it like 60, 70%, you know, like me, I'm probably like a 60%er. Harmony is kind of like, where I'm trying to be at, even though the matrix is still dragging me down that 30, 40% some of the time. Right. But then there's people who are totally flipped. Like they don't experience harmony unless they like go on a vacation or something, you know, cause they're so into the matrix and the way the matrix of our culture and technology has shaped our lives, you know, onto this calendar system that we, we can't just sit and observe and have a moment of, of peace, you know, in nature. No, it's, it's something that's missing. And, and this concept of free time as well, you go back to, I mean, they reckon now that hunter gatherers had a lot of free time. It didn't really, you know, all they had to do was look after the shelter and the food supply and the water. And, 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 you know, other than that, it was playtime you know, other than making bits and clothes and building shelters and whatnot, but our lives are so consumed now. We're, we're just cons- we're just consumption addicts, and uh, it, we're, we're born into this system. It's lucky that you get to break out of it and realize what's going on because you're born and raised in this system of consumption. You're bombarded with advertising from the day you're born, you have your cultural norms and social norms that you have to adhere to. You know, you go up, you go to school, you get a job, you work to 65 and then you retire. You know, it's like you, you, people have their whole lives planned in front of them. And what, you know, I would I would think, what was the point? What did I actually learn? And, you know, I was lucky. I came to a point in my life where I realized that, it wasn't like an epiphany or a eureka moment or anything, but I was just spending so much of my time on meaningless shit. And it 
and it wasn't fulfilling. And I found there was so much value in the, the pursuit. Once you open your mind, try and get rid of some of this programming and, and think deeply about yourself and what you're thinking you're, you're here for. Right. Yeah. Thing is people aren't, I don't think people are introspective enough. Mm. I think a lot of people are just so hammered. They're so hammered by the daily grind that when they get home, they've worked eight hours, they've picked the kids up, made the dinners and whatnot. They're so exhausted. They've no room. They've no mental energy to think and they've no physical energy, and so Netflix goes on, and I'll finish that box set and maybe have a glass of wine to fucking numb the... And even this, like, paradigm of the hunter-gatherer, you know, and it's not you. I mean, that's kind of a general description of man's ancient past, but, I mean, I just don't see the evidence for that. I think people lived in civilizations that were much more advanced than that. But besides that, you know, look at our diets. I think our diets right now are ultimately, for the most part, the majority of people are eating things that are contributing to that sluggish mentality, you know, of of like, I don't have the time to think about anything, so I'm just going to let you know, this television consume the time that would, you know, and entertainment, the word, it's just to attain your mental space or enter your mental space, you know. Bread and circuses. Yeah, I just think that when I stopped watching television, it was around the same time that I started listening to podcasting a lot more. And don't get me wrong, like, I got my, like, Twilight Zone DVDs, like, the original <laughs> Star Trek DVDs, like, I'll watch those every now and then, yeah. but, uh, but at the same time, I'm at, I'm coming to that place from the perspective of how was, you know, the smart man that created this, like, what was the message he was putting into this? Because there's always, you know, a message, and, and art is art, you know, we can interpret things i don't want to become like a luddite and say oh everything is terrible don't participate in the media but if you can approach the media with this perspective of discernment like what's the bias what's the agenda what's the message behind this you start to notice a lot of themes and i think that's what gets you sick of media ultimately and why you want to go back to some of the older stuff, like the original series of Star Trek or the Twilight Zone, you know, from a time when things were a little more artistic. Maybe that's just my perspective, but I, for the most part, Netflix, you know, it didn't take me more than a month or two to cancel it, you know, because I was just, I got so bored. I'm like, there's nothing here that appeals. You know, I never was a fan of horror movies because regular movies are just so horrifying already, you know, they're just like, is this what life is to people? Because, you know, when I smoke and I go for a hike and, you know, like last night I was sitting peacefully by the beach and two foxes, two foxes ran out of the the tall grass, ran right up to where my girlfriend and I were sitting three times, you know, we're just sitting there peacefully, you know, that was, that was way more entertaining than anything you can find on Netflix. (laughs) Wild wild foxes doing their thing in nature 
on the beach too of all places you know it was just such a beautiful sight but i think that's part of the scene the synchromistic experiment and the ever expanding now is when you put yourself in the place of awareness and presence of the moment the creator the higher intelligence you know whatever force this omnipresent force that pervades all of us and permeates between all of us it can bring you to in, appreciate those special moments, you know. That's just one of many animal moments. And maybe that's just because I love animals that that type of omen means more to me. And that's what comes up in my, you know, destiny. And for other people, it might not be that way. Maybe somebody out there, like, really loves cars and that's part of their synchronicity. They see, you know, certain cars, you know, or whatever's kind of ubiquitous because that's part of synchronicity it's like that nothing's random and we have this huge huge kind of almost chaotic field that we call the matrix but there's no such thing as random it's chaotic but it's not random there's order in every little experience and and the way things happen to you in your life they're a reflection of your inner world you know like when you're frustrated traffic seems to be a little more frustrating you know <laughs> and when you're taking it easy oh maybe you don't notice it as much and, and, and then traffic opens up a bit you know i don't know how things are in the uk other than that you guys drive on the other side of the road the right side yeah. here i'm in between new york city and boston some of the biggest cities you know in the world so traffic can be kind of a nightmare depending on which road you take. But that's kind of like life, you know. If you take the wrong route, you're going to have more obstacles than you would if you took the back roads. You went through the nature, you know. So maybe this is a, another kind of soapbox moment that has no <laughs> conclusion. But I think the, the synchromistic experiment, you know, it's it's an experiment that you have to take in your own life, you know. It's not that we're experimenting we're exploring now but when you first get into it it's like an experiment you know you have to test it out and see what happens and maybe you know your experience is going to be a lot different than mine in which case get in touch with me because that's a part of it you know this sort of network of uh, organic experiences and adding them up from you know the little stories and seeing how they build into this bigger story and how we can all solve the mystery together when we have our head on straight and we're like figuring these things out. Like, Oh, why is this orange type of stone used in every library? You know, like I, maybe there's a guy who knows it, maybe he's wrong. And that's the cool part of like going into this mystery is like, even something is like bland. You might think is architecture. Like, Oh, who cares? Squares, rectangles, triangles, wood stone who cares you know no there's a lot of symbolism on buildings statues you know even down to the little like curved lines with a flower like everything has a sort of meaning and resonance and that's something that i've just really tripped out on lately is like looking at all these buildings with new eyes like wow okay why is there a statue of a woman you know with a spear stabbing a panther like i just saw this today she's riding a horse she's got a spear and she's stabbing a panther and the panther's on the front of her horse and this is in a in connecticut where there's no panthers was so it was it hillary clinton on the panther <laughs> 
She might have a she might have a house but I wouldn't be surprised by that. But but yeah, it's just out of out of place things like that, like a panther statue in a place where there's no panthers. Like you know, there's a meaning behind it. What is the meaning? And you yeah. know, when we get into the darker conspiracy stuff, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, there are some symbols like you know, Saturnian type symbols that come up with the same groups over and over. Like with the Freemasons, they're always close to a river, you know? I mean, if a town has a river, the Freemason temple is probably across the street from that river. Yeah. You know, I I would say nine times out of ten, at least where I'm at, some sort of landscape structure that's, you know, unique. And then even down to like, all right, Ross Ben, who I just met up with in Philadelphia, I, I mentioned uh, Tara and my girlfriend and I mentioned like, wow, there's a lot of churches in Philadelphia. And he was like, yeah, there's a lot of red door churches. Have you ever heard about this? No. Red door church. What's a red door church? It doesn't sound good. No, not right. It does not. So according to Ross Ben, who uh, has his book, Free Your Mind and Your uh, Free Your Mind and the, Your Mind Will Follow, great book, as well as Great Mystery Philadelphia, another great book. He told us that a red door church is a church that's built on top of an ancient burial ground. Okay. So, I mean, if you've ever seen like Pet Cemetery, <laughs> stuff yeah. is going on when you mess around with ancient burial grounds, you know, but that's a part of the mystery is like, why are these certain groups building churches on top of particular spots? You know, it's because they have a esoteric knowledge that is not generally shared with the public. And I think that's something that I've always been very fascinated in is the esoteric. And I know Mm. that's something that a lot of people in our community here in the podcasting community are excited to learn about because, you know, we're in the age of Aquarius where nothing is going to be hidden anymore. You know, it's all coming to the light. I like, I like the, uh, the stuff about, um, it's funny how things, holy places always seem to get built on top of each other. It's like when, when the Spaniards made it to the new world and, you know, the, wherever there was a, a native American, uh, it's a holy place, you know, bulldoze it and put a church there. It's like uh, the actual geography has a significance. And you get into sort of ley lines and stuff like that. And uh, like there's some sort of geographical system at work. Absolutely. Yeah. And and around here in New England, you know, any place that was sacred to the Native Americans, they would call it devil's something. So like there's the devil's den, there's the devil's hop yard, there's the devil's cliff, there's the devil's, you know, this and that. So all of these places that you might see on a map that say devil typically were sacred places to the Native Americans. And, and you know, the puritanical kind of fear got them to label it as such to keep people away or, or maybe to demonize this, you know, strange group of people that they were trying to colonize so it was definitely you know that was something when i learned about that i was like oh okay yeah that makes a lot of sense and i went to this place called the devil's den uh in connecticut where there's like this underground cave and you can just feel the vibes around here something weird went down but you know that site is more of an experiential site if you 
want to consider like something that you can see with your eyes. Like there's all of these stone alignments. Like in Connecticut, there's one that's kind of close to the shore. It's called Gungiwamp, and it's these uh, stone caverns, big, huge, massive stones with moss and dirt kind of covering them. And they're almost similar to what you'd have in Ireland with like uh, the, uh, I forget the uh, proper name, but it's like two stones and a, and a flat stone a, over a it. A dolmen. Built into a hill. Yeah, yeah. And, and they have a couple of them, but they're situated in such a way that the back window of the little cavern, you know, reflects the light on the solstice, right? <laughs> yeah. So on the solstices, so this stone, these stones are huge, and they're also aligned just right so that, you know, it's like a clock or a calendar. So this is just one example, and people in Connecticut, for the most part, have no idea that this place exists. It's not like Stonehenge where wow. you can, you know, take a tour and, you know, you'd have to really do some research before you go and take a tour. It's not, you know, publicized uh, and it's not easy to get to, but, you know, it exists and that's a part of this larger mystery. There's so yeah. many unexplained little nooks and crannies you'd, of your own backyard. You'd, you'd love it over here. We've, we've got tons of uh, megalithic stone circles and dolmens. I mean, the yeah, yeah the the UK is riddled with them. Like, I I passed one the other week. I went on vacation the other week, and I passed one, and it was just in a farmer's field, but it had like a, a fence around it, and it was like that was a three stone dolmen. And uh, okay. but uh, there's loads. Of, when I went last time, I went on a holiday. I went to the other side of the country, and I passed um, the UK's biggest freestanding megalith. I think it was about thirty feet tall, and. Uh, there was a church next to it. <laughs> so there was this megalith. It's like what we're saying about building on top. You know, this, this site's been there for 5,000, more than 5,000 years, I think. And, uh, yeah, there's a ch it's in a church graveyard. And there is a, a Roman uh, casket there as well. I forget what they call them, a Roman uh, coffin. So you've got, you've, got, you've got ancient prehistoric or sort of Bre Bronze Age about, you know, maybe 2000 BC. You've got Roman stuff there from, you know, zero, the year zero. And then you've got a church there, church there from the uh, 18th century. So it's like every 2000 years, some, some uh, got built in this site, or, you know, there's human activity around this site. And 2000 years, that's like, you know, 2160 years. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, um, what do you call it? Not the uh, a processional number two one six. You know, it's, it's uh, HD, isn't it? Super HD two one six. You double that, you get four three two, don't you? So I thought four hundred thirty two megahertz, and you know, the, it ties in with the ratio of the moon and the Earth and all that oh. stuff. It's like everything's connected, and yeah. it's just funny that every yeah. two thousand years, something sort of religious gets put in this exact same spot. <laughs> Yeah, down to the exact measurement and, yeah, in alignment with the celestial calendar, you know. And yeah. I, I, when you brought up the Roman uh, part, it kind of threw me off because that's something that I'm particularly fascinated in right now is how the Roman Empire sort of took what was Druidic culture and uh, 
co-opted it, you know, really erased it from history. Now we only have like King Arthur and Merlin's legends, but like for the most part, a lot of that stuff was lost. Am I, am I wrong about that? Um, I mean, pretty much. I mean, the Romans got up to the north of England. They never uh, finished the job. So there would have been some cultural transmission, you know, in, right in the north of Scotland, you would imagine, during the Roman op- occupation. But um, I think, um, like you, we, we've got sort of a cultural memory as a species of something that happened before. And it's like a Graham Hancock put it best when he says we're a, a species with amnesia, or words to that effect. And, and that's uh, why I think this mystery, the history, it's all very fascinating because we're starting to wake out of that illusion, right? I mean, uh, yeah, and I mean, even down to like, okay, so in Connecticut, there's New London, and it's on the Thames River, right? Yeah. Which is where London is, right? In the UK, is on the Thames River. So, uh, or you guys call it the River Thames, right? Yep. So, so... I just thought, you know, there's something magical about that where they're naming things the same. They're sort of creating these like reflections, you know, there's New Britain, Connecticut, and then there's Britain, you know, but there's New London and then the Thames River. And I just thought New York, right? York, exactly. And York, that's a Roman, that's a Roman uh, outpost in England, in ancient England, right? So yeah, so, but there's a, a statue of um, oh my god, I'm blanking on his name, the emperor Caesar Constantine. Oh, okay, emperor. There's a big statue of Emperor Constantine in the center of York because he was the the first Christian Roman emperor, right? And uh, he was, I'm pretty sure, he was coronated or uh, as Caesar in York. And then he went back to Rome to take the title. <laughs> Best in the world. <laughs> Caesar. And, and all of this is to say, like, you know, I'm not a specialist. I don't have any answers. I'm just pointing out, like, these weird similarities and coincidences because there's so much more. And then you find a guy like Graham Hancock who has, you know, multiple books about it and he specializes in this total subject. But then there's, like, even deeper specialists like Michael Wan, who specializes in, you know, the Susquehanna River, and then Ross Ben, who's like checking out Philadelphia and specializing in all the mystery there. So when we can create this larger picture of what's going on mm-hmm. uh, from all of the different intelligent people and all of the resources we can gather in this kind of networked way, it's going to be something to, you know, really counter against places like the Smithsonian Institute you know, yeah, in America yeah. who they basically try to you know corral history into these narratives you know absolutely yeah we had, we had uh, Adam Stokes on who, who wrote a book about giants in Ohio mm-hmm. and um, he he told us all about the Smithsonian and uh, yeah particularly when it comes to Native American history you know it's it this we're the smithsonian we have this narrative and and that's going to be the truth from now on and right. you know we're only just starting to piece things back together now and it makes you wonder i often ask myself how historically accurate is history 
the history that we're given anyway. And this is the the thing that I, because I, I love history and I love reading about history. And the one thing you learn is you've got to, um, you can't just read a text. You have to read the author as well. Who wrote it? When were they alive? What were the circumstances while they were alive? What was this author's political alignment? You know, you've got to, it's, you've mentioned, you've said this word twice and it's the best word for it is discernment. Mm. It's, it's, it's trying to piece things together yourself. And, um, it's, it's really hard because I love wacky stuff and you can end up going down a rabbit hole just because it's so tantalizing and intriguing and, uh, you could be being led astray and you've got, you've got to check You've got to be so careful with what you're consuming. I mean, what's what's your like your attitude to research? Do you like f- super focus on subjects when you're researching in the esoteric realm, or is it more of a shotgun approach? Or do you even have a method? Have you even stopped to think about how you conduct your your research? I yeah, no, I'm. I love this question because I definitely over the past few weeks have thought about it. Uh, but it's like a form of like bibliomancy, you know, you kind of <laughs> go into a bookstore and the right book comes to you, you know, and, and I'm not going to sit here and pretend like, you know, out of the hundreds of books I've bought, I've read every single one, but I'm a pretty fast reader and I skim and scam and I find, you know, scan, not scam. Sorry about that. Skim <laughs> and scan. I hope people aren't thinking I'm skimming and scamming. But anyway, <laughs> So I skim and scan these books and it's so funny, like the way that the information jumps out, you know, and, and right now, you know, I'm like kind of creating this like library that's becoming sort of a burden since I don't have a place to live right now, you know, so they're all just in my grandmother's basement waiting for me to, to find the right library. But, um, but yeah, I think my research is hands-on, you know, and, and like these stones right here, I could show you, um, I just got from the Susquehanna river, but we went and visited this place in, um, the Susquehanna called Foulmouth. You see these like, yeah, there's a, there's a Falmouth in Cornwall on the, on the West coast of the UK. Yeah. Same name again. There we go. So yeah. in Falmouth, uh, Pennsylvania, along the Susquehanna river, there's this spot where you can find all of these really strange rocks, really smooth, smooth rocks. And some of them are huge. I mean, most of them are huge, right? But the the ones you can pick up are strange too, but the large ones have like bowls shaped into them, perfectly circular bowls. And, you know, water has collected in them and other stones have collected in them. And they're just like these shimmering little, pools and like for people who can only you know maybe see online i definitely recommend looking it up because you know they're really out of this world stones along the susquehanna river and you know just going there and experiencing the energy thinking about you know what this could be and then going to the the experts you know because the experts say like a glacier created this but like you know this stone right here i hold it in my hand and i see like all these shell imprints and it makes you wonder like would a glacier have done this you know how could a glacier have done this i mean theoretically if it was cold enough to where a glacier was going on is that alone enough force to imprint a shell into stone like i don't know maybe but these are the kind of things you can like kind of just go and if you go to the right place and you really 
put put it out there. You know, I was only it was only a year ago that I didn't know Michael Wan. I was just a fan of the Higher Side Chats, and I listened to his conversations with Greg Carlwood. And I was driving by the Susquehanna River just by chance. So I stopped and I, I said a prayer. I said my peace with the river. I prayed for the river, you know, and, and just like put my heart into it. And then less than a year later, you know, I, I'm having Michael Wan on my podcast, which leads to me going and visiting him in Pennsylvania. And to make things even more synchronistic, you know, we plan this uh, podcast a month or so ago, right? And I had no idea that I would be going on this trip. But Mike, Michael Wan lives in Lancaster where Amish people live. And this is the Amish Inquisition, man. The first yeah. time ever this week in my life, I saw Amish people. So <laughs> <laughs> to, to bring the synchronicity into the real forefront is like, here I am talking to Amish Phil. And just a couple of days ago, I saw actual Amish people for the first time in my uh, life. All I, by coincidence. I can I can add another dimension to your synchronicity. Did you say Lancaster? Lancaster. Yeah. Well. Well, I'm in the county of Lancashire. Lancaster oh. is uh, Lancaster's ten miles north of me. Oh wow. Okay. See and yeah. <laughs> Amish. I mean, come on now. I can uh, ask where the you, you, inspiration for the name came from. You saw an Amish person in Lancaster yep. there, and I'm Amish Phil, and I'm in Lancashire. <laughs> and that's just fucking weird. That is fucking weird. That's fucking weird. Now, I, I'm wondering now if you've manifested me or if I've manifested you. I wonder. I think that's part of it. I think What's going at- on? Is this your? Re- is this you changing your reality or me changing your reality, Mark? Both, both are tr- simultaneously true. I think that's really how it works. We're synchronized. Are we synchronized? <laughs> like a swimmer, like a group of swimmers. Oh my god! When do we get married? We have to go through our uh, swim routine first. <laughs> okay. Your legs to be flipping through the air. I'm a, I'm I'm all, I'm 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 all right at breaststroke, but apart from that, oh. I'm a bitch. You know. Well, we'll have to teach you the butterfly. I've had plenty of compliments about my breaststroke. All right, all right. <laughs> <laughs> but I gotta ask you, where the Amish Inquisition, the Amish Phil, where does that come from? Other than being. Uh, <sighs> Uh, have you have you have you heard of uh, Monty Python? Yes. Right. They were they were a, a really famous uh, comic troupe in the from the UK. John Cleese, um, Michael Palin, Terry Jones, and uh, Jonathan Chapman was it? Mark Chapman, I think. Or was it Mark Chapman who killed John Lennon? I can't remember. That's another synchronicity, I think, probably. I think it was Mark Chapman <laughs> who killed John Lennon. Yeah, he he wasn't in Monty Python. <laughs> not that guy um, but Monty Python had uh, a scene called the Spanish Inquisition nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition and because uh, we're English and we're big Monty Python fans I just thought Amish Inquisition's a bit of a pun and it's sort of kind of ironic because Amish people don't have technology so an Amish podcast is a bit of an oxymoron and the other thing is um, 
I'll tell you what it was. When we started, I think it was 2017, I think, summer of 2017 we started, there must have been a big hoo-ha, a controversy in the media about people being offended. And we started this podcast, and it's we're, I'm um, a big free speech advocate. I think you should be able to say what, what you want, as long as you're not you know, threatening to kill someone or something. And uh, every, everything in the media was people about being offended and oversensitive or whatever. And someone said, what about the Amish? We can talk about the Amish. We can't offend them. They'll never hear it. So it's, <laughs> there's like about three different reasons. I mean, I know it's a shit name for a podcast, but no, no. that's the best we've got. <laughs> no, my, my girlfriend and I, we were laughing about it. We're like, oh, isn't that funny? You're going to be on the Amish Inquisition. And we were just talking, you know, basically with people who live uh, in and around Amish country. We went there ourselves. I mean, yeah, it's wild. You see them, you know, riding horses down the street with the cart and buggy behind them, you know, and they all kind of dress the same. So it's really, you know, it's like a peek into, you know, 400 years ago, what things might have been like. And yeah, There's something that, I'll tell you what, there is something definitely attractive to me about leaving technology behind in that mm-hmm. manner. I do yeah, wonder, well, uh, you know, if, if a lot of these things out. are a net benefit or not. What I have found out, though, through my week being sort of in proximity to the Amish is that they they have a lot of loopholes, sort of like, like the Jews kind of with the whole, like, uh, Sabbath when they have, like, you know, certain technology they can't use, but they create this technology to, like, you make a loophole so they're not offending God. So, like, the Amish have those kind of loopholes, too, where they're, like, they're not allowed to smoke white cigarettes, but they can go and get like a red colored cigarette or a black, you know, or a brown paper cigarette, but white paper cigarettes are not allowed, you know? So like, it's just like, it's kind of a, a interesting Racist, thing. Racist, really. The other, <laughs> maybe, <laughs> but, uh, but what, what I found interesting is the, the powwow. That's the word for, or uh, bruja is the word for this type of Amish magic that they do. What? Amish magic? Yeah, it's like a mix of German and uh, and Native American magic. And it's so fascinating, you know, these people outside of, you know, on the fringe of society in a way, you know, outside of technology, and there's this, like, stream of mysticism, and you see it on their barns. They have these beautiful paintings that are like hexagram symbols, you know, and like it's like a sigil, sigil yeah. magic, you know, and, and I'm sure they have little spells and there's some folklore. Like we went to this one site that was just beautiful, this huge, huge rock and a tree, the roots growing over the rock, almost framing it like a picture frame. It's a massive rock. I'm, I'm almost six nine. I'm like six foot eight, you know. Wow. So and it was taller than me, you know. This is a massive rock, you know. How and big's your car? <laughs> you don't look that tall in the car. <laughs> six foot eight. I'll tell you that. It's a it's a spacious Nissan Sentra, Phil. Fuck, okay. I had no idea you were that massive. 
Well, also for your, you know, UK audience, I'm, you know, maybe it's a little head trip to see me on this side of the car, but yeah, it's uh, it's a spacious uh, Sentra, you know, it's nice. It, it has enough leg room, I think. But did, did you did you have like a big? I'm really curious. <laughs> Sorry, but I'm so curious about you. You've heard all that. I'm sure you've heard all this before, and, and you was you're sick of it and stuff, but. Did you like, were you, were you the biggest kid all the way through school? Or were you like a sort of a middle-sized kid and then had a massive growth spurt at like four, 13? How did it work? Well, I think I was I was average height in elementary school. Right. And then in middle school, about like, you know, 6th to 8th grade, you know, 11 to 13 years old was when I was, like, the tallest kid, but I was never the tallest kid. I was just wow. in a group of tallest kids because there was, like, you know, this basketball player who went on to be, you know, college basketball player around my height. And then there was a kid younger than me who was always taller than me. So even though I'm a giant, I was, you know, not the only giant in my school for some reason. But, yeah, it's, you know, it's all right. The average door frame is seven feet, so I'm just like an inch away from hitting my head when I walk through a door. So like, no way! Oh, wait, oh, oh, is six foot six? Standard door frame. Yeah, the door. Well, you guys are using the metric system. That's why. Well, right? oh, don't get me started on imperial and metric. Do you know <laughs> what? What was the? Who was it? The the ancient Greek guy. I can't remember which one it was. Who said, "Man is the measure of all things." And you know these these imperial measurements we had, they're all related to the human body. So, like right. an inch is the width of your thumb. That's an inch. Yeah. You know, a foot is a foot, or distance between uh, the elbow and the wrist. And it all goes back to fucking. Even the ancient Egyptians had worked this out. You know, the cubit. A cubit, I think, is the distance between the elbow and the first finger and then maybe a royal cubit is the elbow and the second finger i can't remember i'm probably i've probably fucked that up but you know it's all these the imperial the imperial measurements are all encoded in our dna in our you know classification our species our meat vehicle whatever you want to call it and there's a reason that there's value in that to me and we're in this country we want to throw it away and use metric it's like, no, no, you're throwing away a clue, part of the evidence, important information. We need to know there's a reason why the Egyptians thought it was important to use this measurement. We shouldn't yeah. throw that away for the sake of it adding up to 100. You know, there's, yeah. it, there's value in that. I guess in America, we don't really consider it. It's, it must be a sore subject for you. For yeah, but... I feel, I feel it like is. I might not have, shouldn't have brought that up uh, to be polite. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, the, the Old English and the Celtic, they, they all use this system, this mm-hmm. imperial system, but it's been, the metric system has sort of been imposed on us by the EU, the European Union and stuff. And uh, I think it's a huge mistake. I think it's huge. Yeah, I think we should be using imperial measurements because there's not, there's, there are reasons those, those, units exist and we don't want to forget that information yeah yeah no i mean it's it's definitely it's like a, a mile a mile is a thousand paces that's two steps so a mile a thousand latin mil you know a mile is related to the human body 
Sorry mm. for butting. No, it's okay. I was thinking about the Temple of Solomon and how oh, they modeled it after the, the the measurements of a man, just like you're describing. Yeah, it uh, even kind of reminds me of the story of Osiris too, where they build the the cage like that. He gets the coffin that he gets nailed into. You know, it's like uh, the exact proportions of him, and that's just a metaphor for him coming into the material world. You know, so the measurement. Mm of you know this kind of structure of our anatomy is important i i don't know i sam tripoli you know he calls me the nephilim when when i see him in person you know so if that's any measurement of how tall i am but uh, it's like like, you know it's interesting because i think you know there's definitely like some truth to that like uh because I think my my heritage is kind of in the Scottish, and there's a lot of really tall Scottish people too, right? And yep. and what, what Jimmy Cranky, <laughs> and really cranky too. Jimmy Cranky, <laughs> no, Jimmy Cranky is a famous tall Scottish man. Ah, okay, yeah. okay. Google it, you'll you'll laugh. Well, but that's my thought is like, well, what if there was this culture of people that were more in you know yeah. uh, uh, trading and and cohabitating with taller versions of humans and that's why there's like weird tall people like me still around with like norse heritage yeah uh, you know northern irish or you know scottish and you know all of the different things that make me up not that i've ever done the ancestry.com i did it the the hard way (laughs) another good i had to ask my grandpa you know another good source for these uh linkages between the human form and architecture is uh, the gothic cathedrals in europe so there's a there's a guy a french scholar i think i think he was french called rene schwaller de lubich and he was knocking about in the 19th century i think if i remember right and he's written uh, loads of books but particular one called yes. the temple in man by uh, um about the temple at luxor and all the different relationships between human anatomy and uh, the dimensions and ratios and angles built into the fabric of the temple at Luxor. And it's, I think he spent 20 years there. He was there 20 years basically just measuring this thing, you know, to the, to the best of engineering capability at the time, like the most precise survey possible. And he devoted his entire life to it and then his daughter i think took up the gauntlet and and carried on his research i forget her name now i don't know if she's written any books but that's a good one schwala de lubich i think uh, i think um you know you'll know um, randall carlson from grimerica and i think he's well he's been on rogan a number of times as well actually just booked him on tinfoil hat uh like a month ago he was on tinfoil hat well, that's how I found America was because uh, I was searching for Randall Carlson. Oh, oh okay. And yeah, that's actually kind of similar for me. I, I got into Joe Rogan like everybody did in that time, like four or five years ago. And, and yeah, the Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson stuff led me to podcasting somehow. I don't know if it was Grimerica first because there was also this Stuff They Don't Want You to Know podcast that was kind of like an early conspiracy show and those yeah. conspiracy guys over there in ireland is has been around for quite a while but i'm sorry to cut you off there phil let's let's hear i can't even remember what i was talking about i was just listening to you 
Yeah. Uh, see, yeah, yeah. And um, we we had Darren and Graham on last year. I think maybe a year ago, something like that. And yeah, I think it's do, do you play an instrument? Have you ever been in a band, Mark? No, everybody thinks I I, I look oh. like I should, you know that it's, kind of thing. So when you when you play instrument in a band or, or you start learning guitar, for example, you start by emulating people who you like, mm. and um, they become your influences. And as you get more competent as a guitar player, you start to learn to express yourself as well. So a bit of you gets mixed in with these maybe three or four other guitar players who are your influences. And forever, as long as you'll play, pretty much, uh, you'll always have sort of remnants of uh, little stylistic twists that, oh, that sounded like Jimmy Page. Or, oh, that sounded like Hendrix. I like, fucking hell, I just sounded like Hendrix for a microsecond. So something that you did, some synchron- idio- you know, synch- idiosynchronicity in your play managed to perfectly mimic something Hendrix would have done, you know, day in, day out. But I think that podcasting is the same in that you, you start by listening and then you start to emulate the people who you look up to. So like our show... Our first hour is, is like America, where we interview people, talk to people, authors, a lot of the same subjects as, subjects as you, like esoterica, alternative history, the nature of reality, philosophy, you know, all that kind of stuff. And, um, yeah, so the first half is, is like that with America, but the second half is more sort of like OBDM and, or No Agenda, it's like um, looking at the news, mm. uh, trying to analyse it, see what the message is, learn the discernment that discernment that you talked about. And uh, it's like, yeah, you sort of suck up these influences. I don't know where I'm going with this. And then oh, you sort I, of put your own sort of spin on it, like being in a band. Yeah, no, I like that analogy. I've used it to kind of coax some of my friends into podcasting with me because uh, a lot of my friends don't listen to podcasts unfortunately like my friends in uh, in real life but that's the beauty of it like you were saying before is I've made a lot of really great friends just who are already doing this stuff through podcasting you know and then we kind of meet in the middle and, and form a band you know and, and that's why I, I, I made this cooperative is because we're all able to do our own thing independently. And with the guy like me kind of telling you, Oh, Hey, you should be on good pods and avoid anchor. And like, you know, all of these other little tips that they don't tell you with the podcasting one-on-one videos you can find or <laughs> tutorials, you know, like, so, or fireside chats, God forbid you ever host with them. I mean, they're going to steal all your content, you know? So like, those are the things that I'm researching with the cooperative and, and yeah, man, totally. I feel like Grimerica show, the higher side chats, tinfoil hat are big influence on a lot of people, you know, and I, I try not to replicate their shows, but you're right. You can't help but emulate. Yep. And that's where you have to find the balance of all of being yourself while also emulating and being inspired by those who are doing it better than you 
and and then one day, you know, maybe you do it better, and then they look at you, and that inspires them, you know, because we're all equals at this, you know, we're all, and that's kind of like for me, my story really kicked off into podcasting when. I gave Sam Tripoli a copy of the Kabbalion, you know, the seven hermetic laws. Wow. And I was just, you know, I was just a random fan of his meeting him after a comedy show. And I said, Hey bro, take this book. I had it in this like uh, Faraday fabric bag that I made. So if he wanted to like go off the grid, he could. <laughs> and, uh, and that was enough for him to be like, okay, cool, man. And he remembered me. And then he had me on his uh, Patreon show had me back, had me back. He's like, this guy's pretty interesting. Let me have him on this show. So, you know, and then one thing led to another and I'm working for him. So yeah. What, did that, did uh, you do it? Did you do one with some about Alistair Crowley? <laughs> yeah, that was, so that was, you know, it's interesting because they just did an episode, which was pretty cool. The great magic occult debate, right? That's the newest episode of Tim Foyle hat. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a subject that people were really fascinated in. And I knew that back, it was almost a year ago now, uh, when I did that show, I was like, people are going to be interested in Crowley, but I wanted to take a different perspective on it because I know a lot of people, there's people who like go into the Crowley history, but they like don't look into his darker stuff. And then there's some people who only look at the dark stuff he's done and Mm -hmm. they're like, he's a criminal, fuck this, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, there's there's two extremes. There's, yeah. like, people who are like, oh, yeah, he's like my my British yogi, you know? And then there's other people who are like, no, he was a child molester spy, you know? Like, so I, I found, like, this guy is such a controversial character. Let me add what I know to the mix, because I've studied him, you know, a little bit, and he's a controversial guy, you know? I have a bunch of his books, because kind of naively trying to learn about magic, I was like, all right, let me look at this guy, you know? So I bought a couple of his books. One of them is like one of the most expensive books I'd say that I've ever bought. And this was way before I even listened to podcasts that I bought this book. But, uh, you know, it was really interesting. The feeling that this book, the book of uh, magic by Crowley. It's literally his like Lieber four, right? The, the one that talks about the theory and practice of magic. And when I got this book and I brought it into my sphere, it started affecting things in a weird way, you know, like it had a sort of like energy to it. And I've since kind of canceled that energy out, I think by talking about it and, and, and like bringing it to the light, you know, and there are things in that book that are a little strange and you can take them one way or another. And it does talk about child sacrifice, you know, straight up in the book, you know, no, he makes no bones about it. And I think, you know, context is important when you're doing research, you need to understand the cultural context. You need to understand the historical context to understand what someone's really saying. Uh, because there were ways that people wrote that might have seemed one way, and from our modern perspective, from but from their perspective, they're saying something completely different, you know. So all of that combined, I created this kind of like perspective, like on his life, you know, my perspective, going from the beginning to the end of his life, and like finding the weird synchronicities and making mm-hmm. some connections and. 
that episode did really well, I think, you know, because a lot of people hit me up saying either I loved it or I hate you because you <laughs> talked about Crowley yeah. or I hate you because you're a part of it or I hate you because you, you, you know, you didn't say the right things about Crowley. So there was a lot of negative attention that I got from that. But it was it was great because I'm like, wow, 100,000 people just saw something I talked about, you know, and. I've been having conversations like this my whole life. Just most of the people who were participating didn't want to be there. You know? <laughs> <laughs> smoking a joint with someone to bring up like esoteric stuff. They're like, what are you what talking about? That's not real, dude. You know, like aliens. Okay. Maybe, but the pyramids, what are you about, you know? but yeah. now with podcasting, I found people who actually like give a shit about this research and like, you know, wanna wanna learn more and have so many things to add too, because yeah. I'm only one person. I can't figure it all out. But that's my approach with Crowley was like, let me highlight the darker side of this guy to kind of show people both sides of the coin. Cause there's people out there who just talk about the nice things he did. There's people out there who only talk about the Yeah, polarized. Yeah, and yeah. I think he's bad. You know, my opinion, and you want to really ask me my opinion. He was a bad dude. He did bad things. He did things that I would never do, you know. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm going to run away and hide and put my hands over my eyes and not see the truth of who he was, you know. And when I had a conversation with Sam, you know, it didn't go the way I thought it would, but that was, like, on me. You know, I could have did a better w job of explaining it. And, uh, and that's fine. I think that added to it because I was one of the only people who've ever kind of like argued with Sam on his show in that way and got him all fired up about a topic to this day. If anyone makes a mention of Crowley on his show, Sam goes, <laughs> I would fight that dude. <laughs> I would him to say that, you know, in a, in a minor way. So that's kind of like the solace I take from it. And, and I'm not done researching him. I don't, I've put it on pause right now, but I don't plan on like selling any of the books that I have about him. I think there's still more for me to learn about him. And, and like, you know, it's, it's just a, a matter of like perspective, you know, I have the same, almost the same birthday as him. He was born October 10th. I was born October 11th, you know? So there's a, a coincidence I couldn't ignore when I first looked him up and got interested in this stuff. And, and I don't think it's done me uh, wrong. Cause like, here I am now, Sam, you know, took me on and, and I work for him. I also have the room to create my own podcast and I, I do the cooperative thing and, and maybe Crowley's sort of energy added to that in a weird way. Who knows? I think you're definitely right about the way podcasters sort of democratized information. And that must, uh, you know, until the invention of podcasting, people had the TV, which was pre-programmed, and the radio, which was, you know, all right, there's outliers, but, you know, most people listen to the main BBC radio channels or whatever. And uh, podcasting has opened up this avenue for uh, people to explore different uh, ideas and worldviews and uh, find out information that wouldn't otherwise be fed to them. And uh, it's a, definitely a universal good in that respect, I would say. Here's here's a point that I, I think is emerged from podcasting that I wonder if you think is, because I don't know how to feel about it. I might be a little paranoid, but let me, hear me out, okay? So now 
these transcript technologies where they can take a podcast and transcribe it, right? I mean, think about what's happening. I mean, at from one side, now publishing a book is easier than ever. You can just talk into your microphone and, you know, create a book, transcribe it into words, edit it, publish it. You could put it out, you know, without even printing it on paper. There's so many ebook readers these days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, you know, the other side of it is you can know what, like, you know, figure out syntax in this reverse engineered way to where, like, what if there's an Amish Phil bot out there one day that's just, like, chopped up clips from your podcast, like, organized in such a way that it seems like an AI consciousness, you know? Yeah. And, like, me too. Like, I've, you know, put 63 episodes out. That's almost 100 and something hours. Yeah, that's enough. You know, some of, yeah, it's enough. That's enough voice of Mark to, like, create a Mark bot you know, with this kind of transcript technology. So that's that's the side of it as like a podcaster who's also conspiracy theorist <laughs> yeah. participating in something that is going to be a conspiracy one day. But at the same time, it's like, hey, man, this is how I woke up. And if I can wake other people up through this vessel, like it wasn't the total package and I wasn't totally like a fish out of water before I found podcasts. But it, it, like I said, it fueled the fire even more than cannabis could, even more than books could, because it brought it to real life. You know, oh, here's a, a guy who's all the way across the Atlantic Ocean who shares a lot of the same ideas as me, and we don't have the same opinions, but we can share, you know, our opinions and find meet in the middle and and have these great discussions. There was an AI bot that came online on a website about a year, maybe two years ago, and it was a Jordan Peterson emulator. And basically, you could type in any sentence you wanted, and it would spit out Jordan Peterson um, saying your sentence. In fact, like some of our episodes at the start have uh, Jordan Peterson Peterson saying, uh, "Don't forget to like and five star review the Armish Inquisition" or something stupid <laughs> like that. <laughs> because and uh, it was it was up for about a week, and then they took it down. Jordan Peterson like had it out with the guy who ran the website, and by mutual agreement, they took it down because they realised how dangerous this is. You can get Jordan Peterson on a, a video, an audio clip, saying anything you want. How does he prove that he didn't say it? Right. Well, he can't, and this is uh, sort of the danger. But and it I- brings to question every voice audio clip you've ever. Heard. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. How do we know that they haven't had this technology since World War II? You know? <laughs> Fuck. Like, or even, you know, earlier. Like, there's, you know, telephone, telegraphs, you know. This is where you need this is where you need ethics to come in. You would hope that someone in control had some ethics and would decide that this isn't acceptable, so we're not going to do this. Yeah. But, uh, Isn't it funny that the guy Aristotle who wrote ethics is like anything but ethical? <laughs> molesting children and shit. Like he's another person like Crowley. Not to make light of that, but mm. you know, it's like this is the type of people who've created our society. You know, um, yeah, it's just yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's stunning. You know, to to really the truth is dark, but at the same time. When we shine light on it, it demagnetizes the polarity, the evil, 
You know, that's something that Ross Ben kind of taught me through speaking with him this past week in Wissahickon Creek in Philadelphia. And anybody listening to this, if you happen to live near Philadelphia, I encourage you to get in touch with Ross's work somehow, whether it's his book or his videos online and like look into it. Cause it's just like, it's so wild. Like what you can see, if you just take a walk around the city, you know, and just see, you know, where things are placed and back to like the mounds and stuff and, and rivers too, you know, the Schuylkill river goes through Philadelphia, the Dutch people named it. I mean, there's just so much interesting history there. Cool. Well, Mark, it's uh, it's mid. It's just clicked over midnight here. I'm gonna have to go well, to bed. Kind of yawning on me, Phil. I didn't think because <laughs> I was boring. I thought maybe you're tired, but I don't know. Maybe I'm just boring. And no, I'm fine. Too. I appreciate it. No, it's it's been great to meet you. Finally, I've I've enjoyed our conversation. Likewise. And uh, yeah, it's been good. I'm I'm sort of I'm a bit blasted to be honest. I, uh, you did kind of make a spur decision to smoke weed with me. I'm sorry to do that to you. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. I didn't. It's illegal in this country. <laughs> well, it just got... I'm in New England. It's legal here, but you're in Old England, and I'm sorry to hear yeah. you guys aren't... Amish Phil, Amish Phil from Lancaster. <laughs> hey, let, me, let me tell you guys, though. If you're in England right now, real quick PSA... Illegal weed is still better than legal weed, okay? They get it from your your local dealer. Don't go to the corporate dispensaries. No, you can grow it yourself. Exactly, or grow your own, even better. Yeah. Not that I would I ever would like, but you know, I don't I don't touch the stuff personally, but yeah. This has been a, a wild uh, swap cast, right? We're yeah. Hope put this out on both of our podcasts, but Thank you for having me, man. I appreciate this. No problem. And, uh, yeah, it'll go out tomorrow. Don't forget to check all the links in the description. We'll, we'll you know, all the social media links will be there. You're on uh, Instagram? Yeah. I watched, yeah. You, I watched your live video today. Yeah, yeah. Oh, <laughs> so yeah, you saw me? Yeah. Even? Yeah. You can follow Mark everywhere. And uh, it's been really fun. I, we, I better go before I collapse. <laughs> get some sleep buddy i appreciate you we'll do this again soon yeah absolutely take care of yourself mark happy travels right on nice meeting you bro yeah you too take care take care everybody one more week and he'll be back Willie, though. The Bigfoot. Will he be back? Why? I've uh, got a message. Lee from The Big Conspire oh, right, is, okay. is concerned for Amish Ben's welfare. Yeah. I mean, I don't really know what he contributed, to be honest with you. Um, it's a dour sense of humour. Mm, and smells. <laughs> yeah. Which don't really translate. A giant beard. Yeah, Lee's wondering if he was maybe uh, abducted by aliens. <laughs> no, he's well. He's he may have been abducted. He has been taken away in a caravan somewhere, <laughs> hasn't he? Or uh, yeah, maybe crop circles. Yeah, um, I think he said. He, did he? Has he said that it's taken him eight point five hours to get home today? 
And that's why, you know, you shouldn't tow uh, a caravan to the other end of the country. Yeah, it's stupid, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, you, you can just hire one. <laughs> why, why the fuck would you do that to yourself? Yeah, uh, yeah. Did we f- how, how many holidays does he need to go on to pay back his... Uh, to earn his caravan? I think it was 20, maybe 30. I don't, oh. I don't know. I don't know. Because I don't know what it all costs to store, and you still—it's not like a free holiday. You got to pay the side fees. So you're only getting yeah. you're only getting a discount on each holiday, right? Okay. Uh, he's probably getting shafted, <laughs> big time. <laughs> Is this before or after he was abducted? <laughs> he's being probed <laughs> by some Haven rep. Yeah, Haven. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we mustn't for- forget to do the housekeeping this week. Yeah, we didn't do it last week, did we? No, we fucked up. Yeah, sorry, everyone. Have we got double housekeeping then? Double. No. No, <laughs> no it's it's pretty much formulaic. Okay. Do you want to get it out of the way? Are we going to do it now? Just straight in there, dry? Yeah. The housekeeping. Then, we're not sure what's going to happen tonight. We might have a guest uh, later on. Yeah. Uh so we might as well do the housekeeping and the news. I've got lots of fun stuff to do tonight. Oh, you said this three times now, so this Twice. is not going to be fun. Go on. What? Go on. Do you want to do some housekeeping? Yeah, go on. <laughs> housekeeping. Housekeeping. This is a value for value podcast. If you find this podcast valuable, please consider returning some value. There's a myriad of ways of doing this. There are not. There are a myriad. What's your favourite way? (laughs) Um, Artwork. I don't think we receive enough artwork. No. Um, I think, yeah, I think we need more artwork for title cards. Yeah, show artwork, episode artwork. That would be greatly appreciated. Either email it to us at thearmsinquisition at gmail.com. You can send it to us via the Discord if you're on there. Yeah. Via whatever social media. It's all all the links are in the show notes. Whichever Uh, medium you uh, prefer. Yeah. Whatever's most convenient. Yeah. Um, What else? Um, I always like reviews. Oh, gosh. It's nice. Yeah, we've we've not had an iTunes review for for donks. To be fair... Uh, hardly anyone listens on iTunes. Right, okay. It's we a have small a, percentage. We've of hardly it. had any Garner um, <laughs> reviews. <laughs> but uh, the iTunes are the ones that seem to matter. Right, okay. Um, so if you are on iTunes and you have five minutes, drop us a review. Not even or five it. minutes. It doesn't take five well, minutes no, to write a review. I, I don't know. I haven't got an iPhone. I presume it's pretty easy. Yeah, so I mean, it only takes like a second to press five stars and move on. That's a rating, oh, not reviews. Right, okay. You Maybe that's where we're going wrong then. Asking for reviews. Yeah. Well, rate us as well. Yeah, rate. Rate, rate your mate. Rate and review. Yeah. Um, follow us on Odyssey. Yeah. Chuck us some crypto if you feel like it on Odyssey. You can earn free Odyssey every day. Uh, free Odyssey. You can earn free crypto ed- every day on Odyssey. Yeah. If you're watching this on YouTube... Um, you know, you only get sort of half the podcast on here. Mm-hmm. The uh, the second halves, which are usually too spicy for YouTube, have to go on Odyssey or on the uh, podcast download. So 
You're missing out if you're not on Odyssey. Mm-hmm. If you want to see how the sausage is made. Yeah, I mean, the stuff so far to be removed from YouTube is, is probably one joke about uh, Prince Philip. So, you know. <laughs> You're on borrowed time. Yeah. I think if they decided to go through the back catalogue. Yeah, I mean, you know, but we've got to sort of, we're trying to play by the rules. Yeah. Uh, just so that we can point people to go to Odyssey and... Uh, the mp3 download spotify itunes and all that lot mm. so yeah if you are watching on youtube check that out buy some merch look what i'm wearing holy shit i didn't even notice didn't even notice your own merch you're literally a communist this way there we go yeah there he is old lenin and this is a lovely lovely hoodie he's so soft still it's been washed like twice yeah in a year and uh, no fade and no detriment Z- to the yeah to the transfer. Excellent, um, comfy. You can get the new logo uh, courtesy of Amy the artist on there as well. She um, made it fit for putting on a t-shirt because after she'd finished laughing at my attempts of Microsoft Paint, mm-hmm. she uh, made it so it would work on a t-shirt. Uh, so you can get that or a hoodie or a mug or whatever. Yeah. Uh, the Amish loot chest. Yeah. Is there anything else? Uh, follow us on social media. Follow us. Join the Discord. Join the Discord. S- become a producer. Become a producer. This is crowdfunded or crowd produced rather. If you find something weird, particularly in the news media, that's what I like. Yeah. That we can deconstruct. Send us a link or a video clip. Now you say deconstruct. You just mainly laugh at. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose. Yeah. Depends what it is. Um, Some of it requires deconstruction. Okay. You got to realize what the what they're doing, what the motivation is for running certain stories, why the how they phrase certain things. You yeah. can't if you just sort of sit back and consume it, you're just being brainwashed. Essentially. So that is an important service. It is, isn't it, that we provide. I say we, I'm you. Well, you. You, the producers as well. And you. Because we've only so many ears and eyes and time to uh, scour social media and the news for these things. So yeah. we, we get a lot of stuff through Discord. Too, you know, sometimes too much. We've got to pick the cream, scoop the cream off the top. <laughs> and uh, to fit in this time that we have allotted every week. Yeah. What else? Memes? Memes for Instagram? Yeah, send us memes. Yeah, we've not had any memes for ages, actually. Mm. That's weird. Slacking. Yeah, anything else? Email us at thearmistinquisition at gmail.com. Mm. There are various threads on the Discord for feedback, guest suggestions, topics, all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, is that it? Um, could always toss us a fucking coin. Toss a coin to your witcher. Yeah, do it for the lads. The lads. 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 Because, you know, we're, uh, oh, we're northern and we're bloody miserable and the weather's fucking shit. Exactly. You you are extremely cool, guys. Exactly. Yeah. Well, on the note, shall we thank the producers for episode 194? There is quite a few. If we must. Yeah. Okay, we have Lee from the Big Conspire, Helen from Discord, Tired Man, Gaff, 
Gav Scott, Robbie Robertson, Matt Chin from Apocalypse YouTube channel, and Nomi Nosnodge. You are so amazing. They are. Yeah. So amazing in their love. It's a miracle. Literally. The best mate. Big up the Mandems. <laughs> it's time to big up the Mandems. Yo, the dwarf, the carrots, the grape, the cunt, the communist, the homophobe, the misogynist, the cripple, and the mother of from hell. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for your support. We're just trying to, you know, building back better, and we need your help to do it. Yeah. So uh, keep it up. Mm-hmm. Right, let's move on. Let's do some COVID news. Like I said, COVID, like Michael Gove. COVID. COVID news. COVID-19 news. People have got to understand vaccination is going to be, in the end, your route to liberty. The magic vaccine. A big fat shot in the ass. From hell. You know, it's just, you know, super painful. Like a judgment day and terminating mode It's not going to allow us to go completely back to normal. Anal swab tests in the same ballpark as seasonal influenza. I can't save you if you're not wearing a face mask. Read the standing orders. Read them and understand them. Epic dub. <laughs> right, let's go back in time. I've got some old COVID news to start with. COVID. COVID news. This is from uh, Pfizer.com. Right. And this is the 18th of November, 2020. Last year. like 10 months ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Pfizer and BioNTech conclude phase three study of COVID-19 vaccine candidate meeting all primary efficacy endpoints. Primary efficacy analysis demonstrates BNT162B2, the Pfizer jab, to be 95% effective against COVID-19 beginning 28 days after the first dose. 170 confirmed cases of COVID-19 were evaluated, with 162 observed in the placebo group versus 8 in the vaccine group. Pfizer magic juice stops you getting COVID. Let's go to this week. Good afternoon. We start with breaking news this hour. Scientists stress that more research is required, but early findings from Public Health England suggest that vaccines might not be effective in reducing the transmissibility of the Delta variant of coronavirus. Well, let's cross straight away to our health correspondent, Ashish Joshi, who can give us more information on this. Ashish, just how worried do we need to be? Well, what's happening? And we've had it from the CDC as well. Rochelle Walensky with a statement uh, this week. That the, the vaccine doesn't work against the Delta variant. Doesn't stop you getting it or transmitting it. Okay. Let's uh, hear more. Good afternoon. We start with breaking news this hour. Scientists stress that more research is required, but early findings from Public Health England suggest that vaccines might not be effective in reducing the transmissibility of the Delta variant of coronavirus. Well, let's cross straight away to our health correspondent, Ashish Joshi, who can give us more information on this. Ashish, just how worried do we need to be? Not at all. 
at the moment, um, just a little concerned, I think. I've spoken to the uh, the people at Public Health England this morning, and they are keen to stress these are very early findings. These are the initial findings, and a lot more research needs to be carried out to see exactly what this means for the long-term implications for the vaccine and for the Delta variant. Well, this is the weekly technical briefing. This is what the PHE scientists have found out and they make it public. And during the course of their research, they found that, and I'll read to you from the, the Public Health England guidance. They so this is a quotation from the technical report that comes out every week. They said that they found from their initial research that levels of the virus in those who became in, who become infected with delta having already been vaccinated might be similar to levels found in unvaccinated people essentially what that means is that's the viral load the levels of the virus contained within a, a, a person now if they're the same if you're vaccinated or unvaccinated that might impact the transmissibility of that virus, i.e. the ability to pass on that virus to another person. If you've been vaccinated, we have been told all along and... Who's told you all along? Well, the, the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. yeah. With the studies that they designed mm -hmm. with their own endpoints. The, the research has found that the vaccines reduce transmissibility. Now, these initial findings seeming to suggest that they might not be as effective as once believed. So, well, <clears throat> I, I thought that <clears throat> you could you could get a virus even if you had been vaccinated, but it wasn't as bad. That was my understanding of being of a vaccine. Uh, so you can still no. get it. Yeah, you get it and you you kill it, and it never takes hold. Right, you so have something called sterilizing immunity. So they're saying that it, the vaccine doesn't provide that. No, your viral load, according to this information, is the same as someone who's unvaccinated. All right, well, that's um, a, that's a waste of money, then, isn't it? Well. It has huge implications, doesn't it? Yeah. So, for one, herd immunity is impossible. From a vaccine. From a vaccine, importantly. Good yeah. distinction, yeah, because natural immunity is sterilising immunity, as far as we know. As far as we know. As far as people getting infected twice, mm -hmm. it seems to be incredibly rare. Well, is sorry, I was going to say, one of my, I know somebody that's, says that they've had it twice. My missus knows someone who's had it twice, but... But it's whether it's actually... It's from a PCR test. They've had two positive tests. Yeah. So it's whether it's uh, accurate. And if you don't have symptoms, it's kind of irrelevant. It's right. your symptoms that make you spread the virus more, isn't it? By coughing and sneezing. And well, you would have thought that he would have had some symptoms to have a test twice. Well, you? I don't know, because we routinely test a million people a day, or have been until recently. No, I, th routine. I think this person went for a test off their own back twice and yeah. said they had it twice. But like you said, how accurate is it, I don't know. Oh, or is it another coronavirus? That's what I mean, yeah. No, it's, yeah. it's one of them. Yeah. I mean, the point is, is that as far as, well, natural immunity has to be sterilising, otherwise we wouldn't exist as a species. <laughs> yeah. We'd have been wiped out yeah. millions of years ago. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the other implication is a vaccine passport. 
It's pointless. Completely pointless. Yeah, it is, isn't it? That's interesting. Unless you're just trying to control people, <laughs> you know, then yeah. I guess it's kind of useful. Yeah. Mm. Um, there's some people have been saying, well, you know, if this thing reduces your symptoms, but doesn't reduce your infectivity, it could be worse because you won't even know you're ill. Part <laughs> of our, our system, our, yeah. um, what do you call it, Darwin? Evolution. Evolution. We know if we see someone coughing and spluttering, we know to keep away from them. Yeah. And if you're if you're symptomatic, you feel ill, you're less likely. I know some people still go to the office, but you're less mm. likely to. You're going to mm. ring in sick. Whereas if this sort of clouds your symptoms or shrouds them and doesn't reduce your infectivity, it's just going to be like a, you're going to turn into a super spreading vaccine factory, a virus factory. You it's, are, aren't you? Yeah. It's uh weird and it's not isolated it's not just phe um as i said the cdc released similar information last week it's like you said it, it comes back doesn't it to the studies based on pharmaceutical well trusting pharmaceutical companies to design their own studies yeah um, to decide what their exclusions are going to be and when and how they exclude different people from the studies design yeah. the endpoints and who's watching them and are those people captured? Are they... Like Amish Ben? Yeah. Are they like former ph- pharmaceutical in- industry workers? Are they uh, well, looking they forward they to... Normally are, aren't they? Yeah, looking forward to a nice, cussy, non-exec consulting job. Yeah. From, you know, somewhere down the line. Mm. Who knows? It's just that... You, yeah, I don't know. Should be careful what I say. Yeah. Um, yeah, just a, a complete sort of what the farage moment. <laughs> what the farage? Yeah, yeah. Um, I've got some bad news. Oh, what is it? 